Welcome. This is Beyond the Moat. Thank you for tuning in for our very first episode. My name is Tisha, the Visitor Engagement Specialist. And my name is Kira. I'm the Collection Specialist. For those of you who missed our trailer, welcome to Beyond the Moat. I'm Kira. I'm the Collection Specialist for the Fort Monroe Authority, which means, broadly speaking, that I handle the artifacts, the objects, the stuff, the 3D materials. And I'm Tisha. The Visitor Experience Specialist, which is a fancy way of saying I handle hospitality and I interpret the stuff. And we will be your co-host. So the title of our podcast, Beyond the Moat, is in reference to the moat surrounding our masonry fort, Fort Monroe, which is located in Hampton, Virginia. And we're in the habit of referring to both the fort itself and the land it occupies as Fort Monroe. However, in part of our effort to change the way that we talk about the history here, we're making an effort to differentiate between the land and the fort. The fort is Fort Monroe and the land is Old Point Comfort. The fort itself is the oldest masonry fort in America. It was constructed beginning in 1819, and until 2011, it was an active army post. We're here to share a more complete narrative of the people who occupied the land known as Old Point Comfort, and the interpretation goals of the museum education interpretation team at the Fort Monroe Authority. As we work through these previously ignored topics, we will be bringing in members of the descendant communities and subject matter experts to share their history. So keep checking into our channel and come beyond the moat with us at Old Point Comfort. Today, we are going to be discussing what it is to create a narrative. In this episode, you may hear us use the term contraband. This is the preferred term by the descendant community. In their historical context, contraband was the term for freedom seekers who were classified by the U.S. Army as contraband of war during the Civil War. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes about the people who sought emancipation at Fort Monroe. We're back. We are. <laughs> this is us. And better than ever. So, Kira, what is the narrative we have historically told at Fort Monroe, here at Fort Monroe? So, at... Fort Monroe, if we're talking about the kind of historical interpretation aspect right. of the Fort Monroe Authority, right? It's only 10 years old. Um, but the museum was founded in 1951. <laughs> so that's, that's a pretty long... Interesting. Yeah, that's a long span for a museum. Like, we're, we think that we're a young institution, mm -hmm. but... You know, that's only because the Fort Monroe Authority has only existed for 10 years. But the museum itself has existed for... Quick math, 70? Yes. I'm getting a yes from producer Jen. <laughs> 70 years. Um, and that iteration has changed a lot in the last 10 years, but also before that. So the Casemate Museum, mm -hmm. as you and I both know, was founded as the Jefferson Davis Casemate Museum. Right. Because Jefferson Davis was imprisoned um, in Casemate 2. A brief explanation of what a casemate is. A casemate, which I think is important, uh, since we're going to use the word a lot, right? Right. So a casemate, uh, inside the fort, each of the sort of quote-unquote rooms, air quotes, in the fort is a, is a casemate. So in Casemate 2, because we number them in the museum, in Casemate 2, Jefferson Davis was imprisoned for four to five months. I think it's October 
May to October, something like that. He's not in prison in that case, mate, for very long. No, not at all. He he was a sick man already, and he became sicker in in the casemates, and he was moved out to Carroll Hall, which was another building on the fort. Um, but he was in prison in that casemate, and so in 1951, the the Jefferson Davis Casemate Museum mm-hmm. was founded. Three years after the desegregation of the army, so. You tell me. So since that time, it's expanded out from Casemate 2 to include other casemates. We now have eight casemates. Nine, we have 12. 12 casemates right. that have interpretation in them. And a gift shop. Stop on by. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we now have 12 casemates. And the interpretation has expanded in a lot of ways, right? Because we, I mean, we still have the Jefferson Davis casemate. <laughs> but that proves an interesting point. So yeah. if you back up a second. I will. We were... <laughs> We were 100%, you know, the Jefferson Davis Casemate Museum. Yeah. So that lets you know the narrative we were telling right then and there. Right. Um, Very lost cause. Yes. Old South. Good old days. Right. Going with the wind. Um, Despite the fact that Fort Monroe was a Union fort, it <laughs> yes. never fell from Union hands. Never. Despite Richmond being the capital of the Confederacy. Right. Anyway. So moving forward, right. it expanded from them. I believe the next exhibit that went in was the Ironclads. So it was the Battle of the Ironclads, which again, Civil War. Yes. Civil War history. So we're doing Civil War history um, at Fort Monroe. So it's military, but it's it's specifically Civil War, and it is also like a lost cause. Mm-hmm. If we come to the future a little bit, so like 2011 and forward, mm-hmm. our interpretation has expanded a lot, if, if only in like the number of topics that we cover. Mm-hmm. But if you move through our museum now, from the very beginning, it's, uh, it's a colonization forward narrative. So now here we are uh-huh. trying to expand the narrative. So when you hear expanding the narrative, mm-hmm. because a lot of museums say it. Absolutely. Kira, do. <laughs> Kira, can you elaborate on exactly what does that mean and how do we do that I here can. at Fort Monroe? Until 2011, mm-hmm. Fort Monroe is an, army, is an active army post. Right. So from 18, circa, 10 years on either <laughs> side, let's say circa 1820 to 2011, right. Fort Monroe is an army post. <laughs> we were, and we definitely don't let you forget that. Absolutely. <laughs> because we're heavily saturated when it comes to the Civil War. So much Civil War. Yeah. But our history is so much more than that. And even with the oversaturation of Civil War history in this area, mm-hmm. it's still the same lens. The lens doesn't change. You know, we talk about expanding the narrative and we talk about telling new stories, but in some cases it's not so much telling a new history, but telling the history that we think we already know mm-hmm. from different perspectives. So I think the best example of this in at Fort Monroe is the contraband decision. Right. And I think perhaps there's been an inclination in the past to have it be very focused on, I mean, like the very quick version of the contraband decision. So in 1861, three enslaved men come to Fort Monroe and they meet with Benjamin Butler, um, who was the general here at the time. And he declares them to be contraband of war, meaning that they are not returned to their enslaver who Mm -hmm. comes and and requests them be returned as his property. And Benjamin Butler 
declares them contraband of war, meaning they don't have to be returned to their labor. So in, in a lot of cases, and I think in the, in the example I just gave, right. in fact, it's like very like these men came, Benjamin Butler made this decision and like he is responsible for, I think, I think in the past it's been classified as freedom, but we know that it, it was a conditional air quotes freedom because they were not free people. They had to stay on the fort. They were paid, but they did labor at the fort. Right. Um, and so instead, if you tell the story from, from this perspective of the three enslaved men, who in the story I just gave were only mentioned at the top of it, right? Yeah, so instead <laughs> if, you, if you were to tell it another way, using mm -hmm. a different lens, which is what we try to do now, is that you say these three men. So, okay, just to piggyback off of what you're saying, you're right. But also I feel when you start to look at history through different lenses, meaning other people's perspectives, mm -hmm. women, children, poor, um, instead of rich white men, yeah, it, it gives you a more um, a deeper understanding of the entire picture. Yeah. So it's kind of like um, if you see how if you remember on like PBS or something, Absolutely. where they try to do a Where's Waldo and they zoom in on one little part and then they expand so you can see the whole picture. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how what we're talking about when we say. Um, looking at various lenses and perspectives yeah so taking your example of the contraband decision you know instead of um looking at it from that point of view you look at Shepard Mallory James Townsend um Frank Baker and you say okay what's their point of view right they're being enslaved they're most likely working on confederate fortifications you know for the army of northern Virginia which is the confederacy mm -hmm. um but and they see this opportunity like okay yes we're in virginia but fort monroe is not far from us and you mm -hmm. can just imagine and it's a union stronghold right a union stronghold we know that the federal government that they're not giving that spot up and the confederate army ha hasn't been able to overtake it up until that point so you can imagine them whispering you know to each other in like the dead of night making sure no one else is listening like look I'm gonna do this yeah are you with me if not please just you know don't say anything like you can imagine the plans and when you start looking at it from that point of view the fear and anticipation and anxiety building up to the day whispering to each other as they're crossing paths while they're working three more days I got this I got that you know the anticipation building up and then when they actually take that opportunity to try to um, free themselves, self-emancipate themselves, self-liberate, whichever terminology you want to use, can you just imagine the fear of every sound that they hear? Like, okay, are they after us already? Is that a dog? Is this house friendly? Mm. Did we bring enough food? Did we bring this or that to throw mm. them off our track? And like the sudden rush of relief when they make it to the main gate and like the drawbridge is pulled down and they realize like, wait a minute, they're not Confederate soldiers. Those are three black men, let them in there. And like the anticipation of meeting General Butler and him making that strategic, legal, and military decision. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what? You're staying here. 
can you just imagine the relief that they went through mm. or even to try and sit and think how did they get word back to everyone else mm. you know um telling that story the same thing contraband decision but from the perspective of those three men who were brave enough to make that decision right. to come to fort monroe yeah so much more compelling absolutely like, this is what general butler did right but he's not the one that's you know taking pieces of um fallen branches and wiping away his footsteps yeah you know he's not the one that's like making sure he can find two other people he can trust to make this escape with him yeah it's just more compelling and it's the truth i do feel in a word compelled <laughs> that was great yeah and i think it offers um historical context as well mm -hmm. that like Fort Monroe is special in a lot of ways, but yeah. enslaved people were actively seeking union holdings. Like this was right. a practice of like right. trying to emancipate oneself by seeking a union fort. And also this idea, we talk about this with the Emancipation Proclamation, where like the Emancipation Proclamation was a, a document, Ugh, right? Document. Like enslaved people freed themselves. Right. in a lot of ways so it's not like benjamin butler freed these men which we know that it's, it was a conditional quote-unquote freedom but mm -hmm. like as you just said like these men did the work right they yeah. took the risk they traveled they got here like they it's it's taking that like making them or or skewing them as like passive receivers of freedom mm -hmm. to like freedom seekers right yeah and i think that is not just more powerful emotionally, which I think you really captured so beautifully, but it's, I think it's, it's a more, um, accurate picture of how people express power and agency in history. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And that there's not like doers, there's not like actors and receivers, mm -hmm. right? Like people make their way in the world in a lot of ways. And I think you captured that. And I think you, just from a human aspect, I think we can connect more with that lens yeah. versus of someone, uh, because I've said this before, when we think of historical figures, we think that they're a caliber of man or woman that we can't reach because right. we're reading about them in history yeah. books. But when you take someone who you don't really discuss, like um, Baker, Mallory, and Townsend, and look at it from their perspective, you can pull more human emotions yeah. from their situation than you could the, you know, major general. Right. Partner. Yeah. I just went to Colonial Williamsburg and I told you, like, realistically, if I was in Colonial Williamsburg, I would be an indentured servant. I don't like I don't know how to write my name. I signed an X on the document. I couldn't read it. Right. Like, right. this is the historical experience I would have had. So yeah. thinking about a, a sort of like everyday people perspective is more relatable to everyday people yes now this is why lens is um important because uh -huh. when you go to a place like that if you're only perpetuating you know rich upper class white then you start giving people this false perception like oh uh -huh. that would have been me i would have been dining with the randolphs no like, girly no. baby <laughs> so naive and cute no no so it's important to, I don't know, I just think, just like you said, it gives a uh, more realistic perception of history and it makes it easier to make that human um, connection with the emotions. And it just goes to show that like every story is its own book. Yeah. And um, you know, 
we look at that narrator, same situation, different narrator. Absolutely. So here we are, knowing what the narrative has been, you mm -hmm. know, has been in the past, and now we're trying to expand that. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean to you? Because <laughs> as we talk about very often, um, it is a personal frustration for me. Right. The phrase, like, expand the narrative. You hear this a lot with, like, historic sites and museums. It's like a museum cliche. <laughs> it is. And, I, I, and I, I say that to mean I think it comes from a good place because I do think that many, I don't want to say museums because museums don't make decisions. People make decisions. Mm -hmm. But many people within museums understand that the lens has been narrow mm -hmm. in, in, in many, many occasions. Either, like, racially narrow narrow in a gender fashion in a class fashion right that we need to expand it but like what does that mean what are you going to do in a very concrete sense so what does that look like what does it look like to expand our narrative and first off and our collection what we have in our collection like the physical stuff that we have a i i'm very passionate about this because it's my job right but i i also want to impress upon people that the the stories you can tell the narratives you can tell about history are like so dependent on the stuff that you have like your objects and your archival materials that is your like body of evidence mm -hmm. for the the story you're trying to tell for the argument you're trying to push you need evidence for that right so you need your archival materials you need your primary source documents and you also need your primary sources in in object form and so in order to tell new stories or to tell old stories from new lenses, mm -hmm. right? You need new sources. Right. There are ways you can work with old sources, but you also like to do your due diligence, you need to be actively seeking new collections. And so what we're trying to do is the kind of quote unquote old way of collecting is in your museum, you just sort of wait for people to bring you things that like <laughs> joke about people bringing you things out of your attic. Like, oh, I'm cleaning out my house. Like I brought you this stuff, right? Like that. It's pretty true to form, um, and a lot of it is, is good intention that, that people have things that they feel are meaningful right. and quote-unquote old, so they bring them to a museum. And what we're trying to actively do is become, uh, what is it, active rather, proactive rather than reactive. Yeah. So we want to seek out collections, and so in our efforts to speak to or to connect with descendant communities, um, descendants of uh, indigenous people, descendants of contraband that were here, descendants of, of people whose ancestors were in the military here. Um, you wanna seek out collections from people that you know are underrepresented instead of just waiting for people to come to you. Because in a lot of cases, right, if you're talking about people who are not in any way represented in your museum, mm -hmm. why would they come to you? Right, because they don't trust you. Because A, they don't, it's like A, they don't trust you, but also they don't think you tell that history. Exactly. It's like, I'm not, I'm not going to go to like Monticello, for example, <laughs> and be like, hey, like I have these zines from the 90s about like punk girl culture. Do you want them? No, right? Because they like, <laughs> ma'am. I would no. love to see you try that, though. I think I could make a strong case for that. I think you could. And it would be really compelling, and it would not work. So when we talk about descendant communities, as you mentioned, we're talking about people who descended from folks who used to live. Work. Whose history yeah. 
is touches this place or right. you know involved here yeah directly or indirectly yeah i mean i feel like if you're going to be at a place like fort monroe you can't just rely on academics to tell people's stories yeah. when their descendants are like hi i stayed down the street i yeah. saw you at food lion yeah <laughs> it's know? also that idea of like expanding <laughs> collections because it's it's a very western colonialist idea that like all knowledge can be contained in writing right and part two that anything in writing is like the best form of evidence right because mm -hmm. many there are many cultures in which like written written histories are, are not their way of transmitting knowledge right there's like a strong oral tradition mm -hmm. um like traditional knowledge about the Kikitan, the best way of, of getting that is to learn sort of the oral tradition of the surrounding tribal and groups. I agree. And I also feel like it just makes this, the narrative so much richer. richer. So much yeah, richer. It's like adding yeah. that extra stick of butter and that mac and cheese. Absolutely. <laughs> and I am a strong advocate for like anecdotal cataloging for objects. Right. Because certain, so, um, so like, <laughs> oh, I have a good example. Okay, so for example, we have um, all of the silver from our chapel center. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is not pure silver. It's like, you know, uh, silver-coated copper, which is fine. So some people would say like, oh, well, it's not, it's not real silver. It's not as valuable, right? But mm -hmm. to me, the real value is in learning how that silver was used by the chapel community. Right. So I know that there are some folks um, that belong to the Chapel of the Centurion that will be, you know, a little bit, a little bit saddened by the idea that the silver will no longer be in the chapel center, but it'll be in our collections. Right. And it's like, those are the people I want to talk to, to get the stories of like, what events were you at where this silver was used? Like you have five coffee pots. Like I know when I was a kid, they would serve coffee after the service. So yeah. is that what was happening? And how, what did that look like and what kind of people came, right? Right. So I think that in, in a lot of cases, those like anecdotal stories are what make the object come alive, right? Yeah. I and agree. sometimes you don't, you don't get that in a, in a written catalog sheet. And then it also gives you a different <clears throat> lens, a different perspective, you know? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's the same history. So for example, um, we talked about how we are oversaturated with Civil War history. Yes. And that the lens is very narrow, very, mm -hmm. I would say, standard for, you know, this area of Virginia or just Virginia in general. Well, you you do military history, so you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of military history is from the perspective of, like, generals. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I would argue that maybe recently in the last like decade or so hmm. they're now starting to look at hey what about that guy who um lost his leg in a trench or yeah, yeah what about him because what about he's the him? one out there you know dodging bullets and doing most of the work yeah um yeah absolutely so then when you look at bringing in descendant communities when you look at bringing in outside experts that yeah don't work for your museum or organization right it gives you different perspectives and yeah it takes that history and instead of being oversaturated it gives you the perspective of everyone else and it just makes the narrative to me way more interesting so 
I guess just to, I guess, to recap quickly, when we talk about the different lenses and narratives, um, I think it's also important to acknowledge that we don't know everything. Um, not by choice. We don't know. It's not like we're purposely deciding to be ignorant. It's just because, I mean, it just comes with the territory. Right. And so, for example, um, indigenous communities, the Kikisianatwe year, we don't know a lot about them. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of factors, some historical, but in situations like that, we rely on, and it's important for any organization to do that, to rely on experts and, as we may have mentioned before, descendant communities mm -hmm. to help fill in those gaps um, with actual historical content, you yeah, know, the yeah, oral yeah. history or what was passed down to one person or another, artifacts, mm -hmm. documents, things like that. And especially to frame that knowledge as like the expert knowledge. Yes. So yes. we are not using the input of descendant communities as like filler for, for a narrative we've already created. But I get what you're saying. You, know what I'm, you, yeah. you don't want to create a narrative like, no, we're telling people this is what happened with the key yeah. hand. Do you have information that fits into what we're already saying? Right, because like, that's not collaboration. That. That's no. like very poor collaboration when it you is. treat, uh, I mean, I, in my past work, have was in a situation where I, I mean, I was an undergraduate at the time, so I, it was it was a, a project with an indigenous group mm -hmm. and it was not handled well uh, by my supervisor um, and it did not take into account like what that community wanted mm -hmm. um, and I think there was also like a lot of interpersonal miscommunication um, but it was because the person who was leading the project I think went into it with an idea of what she wanted to get out of it mm -hmm. um, and then didn't take the the community into account and I think that is really both from a, a knowledge perspective but an, an interpersonal perspective where we don't want to just take mm -hmm. but we want to like have a reciprocal relationship so yeah. good communication but also um, this idea which I think is kind of old but I still see it a lot where where some folks in in the museum world or in like historic sites cultural heritage sites have this feeling whether or not they express it in this way or not i think it comes across this way where mm -hmm. you think that having the narrative that a group of indigenous people gives to you like the fact that you're putting it in your museum is enough of like a, you see what i'm saying we're like just like we're putting you in the museum we're and doing so you your favor. yes and yeah. that that because we have to understand that like museums are powerful institutions mm -hmm. and that for some groups, it's like a back and forth, right? It's never one thing or another that like, it can be validating to have your history in a museum. Right. Because it's a recognition that like, our history as a, a group that may has have been like ignored or excluded, right? That like having our history in a museum is validating. It yeah. says like, this is recognition, institutional recognition that our history is capital H history, right? Right. Um, but also there are many there are many historical and modern examples of why like people of color, people in the LGBTQ plus community, like people of different gender expressions, people of different racial groups, people of different class levels, right? Like right. there are many reasons why 
groups of people would not trust institutions oh, to tell 100%. their history. 100%. So then having this idea that like, oh, well, we're all better now. So we're going to include you. Like that is, that's not kind but, or prudent historically. So it has to be reciprocal. Right. You give, you get, right? Like, yeah. And I think there are also some situations where these um, institutions will have like oh for women for example We're so like, as a woman if you come here and you don't really see yourself yeah you know you leave with the perception fort monroe is just about history and men about men yeah. you know um so and i think that's something we can do better at mm -hmm. you know is to bring forth those stories of women i grew up around the area um heard of fort monroe for most of my life had no clue the extent, the presence, the female presence in history at Fort Monroe mm -hmm. until I started working here yeah. and talking to you and Allie and Francois, like, oh no, this woman did this, this woman did that. Yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, are you sure here at Fort Monroe? Women exist! <laughs> Not at Fort Monroe. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's something that we are actively working on doing better mm -hmm. and labor is another one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think also, um, especially in, in thinking about labor, especially because we were such a, a hot resort town in, <laughs> at the turn of the century, um, it's, it's like, well, who, who's operating these hotels, right. right? We have a laundry bill on display, I, I want to say from the second Hygieia, mm -hmm. that may be wrong, um, but we have a laundry bill on display as evidence of like, I think it's used just as something that's like, there were hotels here, a laundry bill, right? It's like, well, who's doing the laundry? Right. Right. I think it also contributes to our idea of like different lenses. Mm -hmm. So not only do we want to show that like women were here, surprise, like people <laughs> who did labor were here other than like high ranking officers, right? right? It's like telling the story from their perspective. Yeah. So it's like. Harriet Tubman was here. I think she becomes like one of those big names that we use. It's like, well, what was her impression of this place? Like, how do you tell, how do you tell the story of Harriet Tubman being here at Fort Monroe from the perspective of like, she was here to assess the conditions of a medical facility. Right. And who is she talking with? Right, right, right. She's not just talking with like the high ranking official. No. Um, I can almost guarantee you that she's talking to the patients, um, those who had some type of direct or indirect experience or encounter mm -hmm. with the hospital. Um, everyone from who, uh, who's ever in charge of that hospital all the way down to who's cleaning up after, you know, patients and other individuals there. Mm -hmm. You know, what about their story? Yeah. So you can't just say, oh, well, she talked to these people too. Right, okay, but who were they? Mm -hmm. What is their story? Yeah. Is this something they just started doing when they came to Fort Monroe? Did they have experience in this outside of Hampton? Mm -hmm. What was that like for them? Right. You know, that is what we're trying to get better at doing. Yes. Um, and we have the right intentions but as you mentioned before when we start working with experts in that area mm -hmm. um be it just experts or descendant communities it helps us make the exchange with whatever group we're focusing on more equitable right 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 and i think that we as a staff try to understand that no matter who we are as individuals, mm -hmm. um, we represent an institution. Yeah. 
And so we have to both like represent our institution in a way that is is respectful and professional, but also understanding like when we're engaging with a group that has been historically neglected and, and ignored, that we, even if I don't consider myself at Fort Monroe to be particularly powerful, mm-hmm. if I'm a representative of that institution, I have power yeah. in, in, in how this history is going to be interpreted. So I think trying to understand, it's so much of it is like, big feelings, which I love talking about feelings. Um, but I think that that, I mean, that's something I like to do in my own work, right? I like to come from a very, uh, emotion focused kind of place. Um, and I think it's important in our work to understand how, how people's feelings are going to impact their, their desire Mm -hmm. to interact with us and how that building of trust is like a relationship between people. Right. Um, I think another very important way of earning trust with outside experts and descendant communities, which are always the same people. I think it's important to show intention in a very grounded way because Mm -hmm. people are not going to want to share their history with you if you haven't demonstrated that you are already trying to do the work, Mm -hmm. right? Because then they have no idea of what their incorporation is going going to look like. So I think our, our visitor and education center is a good example of the way that we're trying to expand the history that we we tell here mm-hmm. the full 400 years and and even more than that how do you understand the exhibits in the VEC especially in relation to like what is n- not incorporated yet into the case main museum i think honesty is a big part of that and i know that may be some cheesy honesty mm. but sometimes nothing beats good old-fashioned honesty so with the flaws that we see as um historians interpreters however you know whatever title you want to use um as the museum education interpretation team the flaws that we see in the VEC in terms of how things are cited some of the quotes that are used I'm honest about that because it builds trust. Yesterday, I was working with some of our part-time employees on their interpretation of the Visitor Education Center. And one of the things that I told them, if you see something that's problematic um, in our exhibit, be honest and let them know that this is something that we are working to correct because it builds honesty. Mm -hmm. So for example, we have a panel that talks about um, the arrival of the first Africans and it says a Portuguese ship. Mm -hmm. Some people say it was a Spanish ship. Mm -hmm. So I told them when you're interpreting this, because historians debate it, mm-hmm. if you lay your money behind 100%, it was a Portuguese ship. Yeah. And someone in that group was saying, wow, I just I searched heard. Google. Yeah. I t- was told it was Spanish. Mm-hmm. You lose credibility. But if you say, you know, some historians still debate on if the ship was Portuguese or Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we do know X, Y, and Z. Then it builds credibility mm-hmm. and they start to trust you more. And then when you build that trust doing little things like that it makes it easier to talk about quote-unquote difficult subjects in history yeah like okay let's talk about what legally happened to the arrival of the first African Mm -hmm. because you already have the trust yeah and um when it comes to like the VEC that's the perfect place to do that absolutely to sit there and unpack why does the VEC seem so different than mm-hmm. the casemate? Yeah. Why is here you're talking the focus is um, 
by the Kikitan mm-hmm. and the arrival of the first Africans and eventually the Hampton University and education for former enslaved people. Why is that the focus here? Mm-hmm. But then when you go to the case me, you don't really see that. We'll be honest about it. Yeah. Because when a casemate was first established mm-hmm. as a museum, mm-hmm. the intentions of um, surrounding the narrative they wanted to tell is completely different right. from our intentions around the narrative that we are trying to tell now. Yeah. So be honest. Yeah. And it also, when you do that, people are more open and honest about their opinions on what could help or what they would like to see and right. it allows us to bring in new interpretation mm-hmm. so that a wider range can enjoy the history but then see themselves in it. Right. And I think it's also a good opportunity to talk with people about like how history operates. Yes. And the fact that it may have been quote unquote like good history. Yeah. <laughs> in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, to start at 1607. Right. Because uh, in a lot of cases, right, since, I mean, I don't need to get into the history of archives, right, but, like, it's that thing with the understanding of the written word Mm -hmm. as the primary document, and, like, we can only work with what we know from these documents, right? So if what you have are documents starting in 1607 and even that is limited Mm -hmm. you can say like well we we don't know like we know that there were indigenous people here but we're not really sure so that's when you have to seek out actively seek out new avenues of of understanding and not just assume the written words you go seek out like oral traditions Mm -hmm. use material culture right you interpret in different ways and i think it's a it's a the vec is a good way to have those conversations with folks because in the case made as it stands right now we talk about the contraband decision, mm-hmm. but we don't talk about really slavery yeah. as, as an institution. And so you can do that in the VEC. Um, so you can explain that and have that conversation and say like, it's not that we are like, mm, we don't know, right? It's like, <laughs> we're, we're still learning and figuring things out. And we want to have sort of a fluid intention with our history that we're right. open to learning new things. Yeah. So we're getting beyond the moat to yeah. the grass outside the fort. <laughs> But we're talking a lot about like what are we doing historically on Old Point Comfort, mm-hmm. but how how does this work have an impact beyond Old Point Comfort? Right. One of the things that the impacts that I see, the work that we're doing, being mm-hmm. more inclusive and layered with how we present our history is we become a safe place for the community to talk about tough topics in our community, mm-hmm. in the political arena and things like that. One of the issues that I'm seeing with just the political debates about how history is presented right. and what is critical race theory, just all of these things, we don't have a safe place where people can come together and know, um, okay, we can come here, they're not on one side or the other, and we can have a neutral place to talk about these things. History, the way institutions present history should not fall in line with any political party. It's history. It's the facts based off of documentation, oral history, artifacts, things of that nature. But a lot of people don't realize that or they don't present their history in a manner that shows that. So I think when 
you become more inclusive mm -hmm. when you you tell everyone's story yeah it gives the community the impression like okay all of it is important right this isn't more important than that I'm not less important than them. Yeah. So when you need those safe places, like, you know what? We can go to Fort Monroe because not only do they talk about the arrival of the first Africans, but they talk about convict labor. Not only do they talk about convict labor, but they talk about labor in general and mm -hmm. social classes and women. Right. So I think that is how we impact the community. And that's why what we do is just so important because yeah. we need those places. Yeah. We will descend into chaos. We're already there. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I actually big disagree with the statement that museums are neutral. Well, I'm not saying that museums are neutral. Yeah. But I'm saying that they should not, when it comes to the historical facts, fall into a political arena. Mm. And why I say that is because when you look at the arguments for critical race theory, mm -hmm. first of all, there's countless people who don't really understand what critical race theory is yeah um it's a higher education specifically with those studying the legal field yeah um i'm not gonna get into it i'll get on the soapbox so people don't understand what critical race theory actually is yeah so what's happening is you have people saying you're talking about slavery mm -hmm. that's crt you're talking about the arrival of the first Africans in America, C-R-T, but it's history. Yeah. History doesn't fall. Historically, you may have um, events, people in history mm -hmm. that fall under a political party, like the former presidents were under a political party, mm -hmm. but in terms of what the facts say, that should not align with. So, for example, me talking about the arrival of the first Africans, it doesn't mean I'm giving you democratic history. Right, right. You know, yeah. that is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I yes, I understand now that it's like what, it shouldn't align with partisan politics in the here and now. Yes. The, the reason I, when I hear like neutrality, I get like skeeved out is because I think there's, because <laughs> in, in my mind, right, uh, museums are inherently political because what you choose to mm -hmm. present, like yeah. the personal is political, baby, right? So like, <laughs> um, if you're talking about race and class, these things have been politicized. So right. what you choose to present is going to be politicized. But I think as historians, our job is to interpret history in its own time mm -hmm. and to not become a historical where you're then my listen you've heard this i know you've heard this it's gonna make your skin crawl when people say um abraham lincoln was a republican it's like absolutely uh. he was you're so correct but when people say that it's often in a context of republicans of defending the, the, yeah. the contemporary republican party which they're not the same thing. And so you have to interpret history within its own time. Mm -hmm. I think then where our job as public historians comes in is to put that history to work in the world to make it feel important to people. For me, the biggest marker of if a museum is doing a good job mm -hmm. is if it feels important now and it feels meaningful now. Yeah. I think people become very disconnected. Um, my biggest fear in a museum is that people walk out thinking that they learned about 1750 and they leave it in 1750, right? Yeah. So I think people uh, should walk out knowing that this matters 
today. I think that is really our responsibility is to understand like what did the landing of the white lion look like in 1619? How mm -hmm. is that understood by people in 1619? And how was that built out to now? Right. I think that is where history, I mean, I'm a historian, so history is my favorite. I picked a lot of career paths where fundamentally I just wanted to understand people. Right. So like I was an early care and education. I was an anthropologist, right? Like I did human services. I thought I was going to be a counselor. Like I uh, wanted to understand people. And so for me, history is the best way of understanding people I because it's very comforting to have a precedent. Yes. And so I think if, if your historical work sort of only contributes to conversations among other historians, I appreciate that you've done that work, mm -hmm. but I think you've got to push it and make it feel important for people because if not, like, what are we doing? Right. And I think that uh, what, what we should seek to be doing in the future and how we impact our community is to show how it's connected to today. And I think that's what we do. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the a really, really eloquent way to put that. Thank you. I try. <laughs> I have big feelings. So my, my impression, which is like, and when I say my impression that museums are not neutral, this is like a school of thought about museums. I am not like creating this. I'm not going to take credit for it. I just am a, a subscriber to that school of thought. <laughs> I am also a subscriber to the school of thought that like museums are community institutions. They're civic institutions. They, mm -hmm. they teach us how to be you know, good citizens and, and community members. Right. And I think if you have a broader sense of the history of your area and how that connects to now, you have a, a better way of, I hope, a, a more informed way of moving in the world to know that like there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Everything has a historical precedent. And I think if you, if you understand that, I think it helps you I feel, I hope, I think that it, it helps you move differently in the world and make decisions. And I think I see myself differently. So for the longest time, you know, we both have backgrounds in history. We all do. Yeah. Um, and I saw myself as an historian for the longest time until I started working as a historical interpreter. So once I started working, you know, as a historical interpreter, then I realized like, wow, this is so much better. I like connecting with people, mm -hmm. you know, um, I'm the, give me a hug. How do you feel? Mm. You know, I'm that type of person. And I found that I could do that, not like physically hug people I'm interpreting to, mm -hmm. but I mean, I, ask first. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. yeah. But I found that I could make those connections mm -hmm. better as an interpreter than I could as a historian. Mm. Um, so for me, just like it's about the human connection. And mm -hmm. I think that's something we both see. Yeah. But we've chosen different avenues to achieve that. Yeah. So I like making those human connections, especially with the community around here, because mm -hmm. we get so many people. Oh, my parents were stationed here. Right. I grew up here. Yeah. Uh, my husband proposed by the seawall. I love those stories. And yeah. I like talking about, like, this is what happened to you. Well, you know what? Um, in 1890, this woman proposed, got, was proposed to here. Yeah. Or this is how they used to celebrate weddings in this time. Yeah. Now, look at the traditions you're doing. Right. I love making that human connection, mm -hmm. um, especially with the community around Fort Monroe and beyond. We yeah. recently had some guests come through 
and he was from I want to say the Ukraine oh wow coming to Fort Monroe so walking him through the visitor education center hearing his experience of how much he enjoyed the casemate mm. and listening to him connected to his history back where he's from right moments like that it's just like uh, historical crack to me give me more <laughs> there's this quote i read once and i think about it a lot and it like makes my heart happy and it was something like um storytelling is just telling one person like it feels this way to me does it feel that way to you too mm -hmm. and i think if you can do that like across time that is also really me i mean you know all of the historical like asterisks where it's like you can't you can't be ahistorical about people's feelings like just because you feel this way doesn't mean they felt this way all of these things but i think that like making a con feeling a connection with someone across history is not right. necessarily doing that i think it just helps you feel again like there's a precedent right um, forever. There's nothing new under the sun. No. What would you say the benefit is of a generation growing up feeling open, being able to have these conversations across various communities, so not just with people who they who are within their own family or people they would typically come in contact with. What's the benefit of having them share in these new interpretations and feeling the safety of being able to have those conversations for when they get older. So, okay, I want to make sure I understand the question. So what's the benefit of having these spaces to talk about what we interpret? So not just the spaces, but what's the benefit of like, so <coughs> currently we have, we're talking more about like interactions we have with a lot of adults that come here and of course children mm -hmm. come here too, mm -hmm. but on a larger scale, if people within the community start at a young age feeling comfortable being able to mm -hmm. just have these open conversations yeah how different mm -hmm. those conversations are when they get to our ages versus us learning just now how to communicate these thoughts and feelings um, mm -hmm. so i would say like the benefit would be for healing and i know that sounds so cheesy but i i don't think i would have felt this way if i didn't work at um, CW and have those experiences for myself. When I worked as a historical interpreter, um, I used to get very triggered and angry when I would come across guests who were very against, very defensive about me talking about slavery mm -hmm. um, and the repercussions of slavery. Mm -hmm. And, you know, them getting angry with saying, with me saying, uh, talking about the um, founding fathers owning enslaved individuals while preaching freedom right. and comparing themselves to said enslaved individuals. Yeah. And I used to, I could not for the life of me understand why are you being such a jerk about this when I'm just teaching you history. Yeah. But then I read this book and it's called The Making of a Racist. I can't remember the author, but when I read that book, it completely changed how I interpret and it made me understand where they were coming from. Mm -hmm. Not that I agreed with where they were always coming from, but because I understood what their emotions were fighting against right. when I said those things, yeah. it made me a better interpreter. Mm -hmm. So for example, racism is something that is taught, mm -hmm. but it's not like people are sitting down with a chart in front of their kids like, 
black is bad, right. white is good. Right. It's very subtle. It's in the jokes that they hear growing up. It's in the books that they read, um, the shows that they watch. It's in them observing the interactions of trusted adults in their family, mm -hmm. interacting with other races and, you know, other diversity groups. That is how it's taught. So what I realized when I'm coming to someone saying slavery was bad, the repercussions of slavery are felt today. What some of them are hearing is you're calling my mother a bad person mm -hmm. or you're saying they're a liar mm -hmm. or, you know, well, my mom said this about black people and she sang in a choir every Sunday. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a, an attack of the trusted adults they grew up with. Once I understood that, it was easy for me to change my approach. I changed my approach and how I interpret to them, and then they began to trust me. So there was one guy in particular, a couple, and they had a child. The first time I interacted with them, oh my goodness, they came to this location every year. Um, I thought they were gonna chew my head off. But like a couple of days later, towards the end of their trip, they ran into me again at a house that specifically discussed slavery. And because I had that knowledge in my head, I had just finished reading the book between my first time encountering them and the last. How serendipitous. My, oh, <laughs> thankfully, yes. Um, my approach was different. And they were more receptive. Yeah. So when the child that was with them was whispering questions, instead of saying we don't talk about that or right. being angry they were like okay well this is what they're trying to say yeah and the conversation with their child was different because my approach to them mm -hmm. was different and i think that's why what we do how we do it how we show it like you said push it out to the public is so so important so i think the the benefit for children that are used to not only hearing these topics mm -hmm. but being able to ask questions is so meaningful and to have the idea that like I can ask all the tabs I can ask questions about race I can ask questions about class I can ask questions about gender and sexuality right and being able to ask these questions and having a space that is prepared to discuss them mm -hmm. in a historical sense will be the benefit I hope of of and I think the ultimate goal is like Obviously, African-American history as a discipline, like black history as a discipline, having like Africana departments has been necessary because it has like the history of black people in America has not been considered capital H history. It's mm -hmm. like segmented and it's off to the side. Right. Right. Or like Chicana history, Chicano history, like Latinx history, women's history. Right. Like queer history, right? All of these things. I hope that in having a place where you kind of bring all these topics together, and there are many places like this, and I and Fort Monroe will eventually be, be a space in which this, this happens, where when you have exhibits where it's not like, okay, in this exhibit, we're gonna talk about women. And in this exhibit, we're gonna talk about black people in America. Mm -hmm. It's like when all of, when you show that these things in their own moment and in our moment now are happening concurrently. Right. Like that is history. Yeah. And so maybe one day when we're ghosties, we will see a, a history where, I mean, you'd have, to, you'd have to have a class that was like, okay, we're only gonna talk about the year 1802. That's it, that's all we can fit in because we're gonna have to go through it. Every little thing. Every little thing, right? But I think, I think the goal is to one day show that like, 
it, there is not a world where like we're going to talk about women over here. And even women is not a great group of people because women are not a monolithic block. Right. So if we're only going to talk, like it's not, because then it becomes like, well, we're going to talk about rich white women. If we're going to talk about women over here. Right. But that's not how history happened. It's not how we live where it is, is segmented. Even if groups of people are like segmented in place, because we are still like a highly segregated country, mm-hmm. events, how events move is is always like interracial intergenerational inter anyway all this to say that it contributes to the understanding that history happens all together right right there is a professor that i worked with for my thesis my thesis is sort of about her but it's not quite a biography but she was a women's activist in south carolina and she is a doll um but she told me this story about how uh she had a house painter come. I think a house painter installing windows, something you do on the outside of the house. And she was telling him that she was a women's historian. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, that's right. Y'all been here all along. Or like, y'all been right here all along. Like, yeah, right along. (laughs) I agree. And not as parallel tracks. We're all on the same train. Right. Right. So I I think that would be the benefit (laughs) of these kids. I hope, fingers crossed. I do think it might take 300 years. Oh yeah. Maybe Definitely. four. We're going to have to see this ghost. Uh-huh. Fugitive Slave Act. May 23rd, 1861. Baker, Mallory, and Townsend. Descendant Communities. Join us in our next episode as we discuss the history of the people designated as contraband and how the family history of their descendants influences their lives today. <laughs>